If you've been kind of connecting with this series, you might remember from last week, we kept seeing this phrase repeated over and over again. It was this, the Lord was with Joseph. And if you remember, Jim taught us last week that that word with is literally translated against. So the Lord was against Joseph. But what we learned was, is that word means like propped up against or pressed up against. In other words, the Lord is holding Joseph up in the midst of his really horrible circumstances. And I don't know about you, but if I found myself in the type of circumstances that Joseph found himself in, I'd be really tempted to take the perspective of that song, which says, no, I walk alone. I've been sold out. I've been abandoned. I've been falsely accused. God has forgotten me. So with Joseph, we see him now sitting in this prison and this interesting pattern continues. If you remember when he was in Potiphar's house, Potiphar gave him some some responsibility to oversee his household. And we saw that actually happen again in the prison last week. Look at this from Genesis chapter 39, verse 22. If you got your Bibles, go ahead and pull those out. The verses are not in your program this weekend because there were so many verses. We're covering two chapters today. We couldn't fit it, all right? So you can use your phone or you can just follow along on the screens or use your Bible, all right? So check this out, Genesis 39, verse 22. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison and he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. So we see this pattern continue where Joseph is given two things power and responsibility and we're going to see that happen again this morning. So check it out chapter 40 some interesting stuff starts to happen verse 1. Sometime later, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt offended their master, the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, was angry with his two officials, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the same prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard assigned them to Joseph, and he attended them. So a couple things stand out to me. One is the phrase, sometime later. When you're in prison, time moves really, really slowly. But at some point, something interesting happens when these two officers of Pharaoh's court get the themselves in trouble. One is a cupbearer, the other is a baker. In other words, these guys are in charge of the king's wine and food. So not only do they prepare it for him, but they have to taste it before the king does so that they can make sure it hasn't been poisoned or contaminated so they can literally kind of take one for the king. Now, we don't know what they did that offended him so grievously. I like to think they slipped a laxative in his wine the night before or something like that. Whatever it is, it was a big deal because Pharaoh was considered a god in Egypt. And so if you did something against Pharaoh that was considered a sin and so Pharaoh's really really upset with these two guys so much so that he throws them in prison the prison cell that's basically below the house of Potiphar which is where Joseph's at and Joseph is assigned to these two guys to basically take care of their every need so not only is Joseph in prison but he's now somebody else's slave in prison that's not a very fun place to be that's actually how some of you feel in your jobs you're like I'm a prisoner slave in this cubicle every day of the week. You, some of you have told me, all right? Now, look at, look at how this plays out, the second part of verse four. After they had been in custody for some time, each of the two men, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were, in, who were being held in prison, had a dream. The same night, and each dream had a meaning of its own. When Joseph came to them the next morning, he saw that they were dejected. So he asked Pharaoh's officials who were in custody with him in his master's house, why are your faces so sad today? Well, we both had dreams, they answered, but there is no one to interpret them. Then Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Tell me your dreams. So again, some time passes. He walks in, these guys are all upset. He's like, what's your problem? They're like, we had these dreams. Nobody can tell us what these dreams mean. And then Joseph reveals something about his character when he says, 
Do not interpretations belong to God? Don't tell me your dreams. In other words, Joseph is still going, I'm leaning my life against God. I have faith and I trust in who God is and what he's promised to do. I have confidence that God can reveal what these mean. And if I'm Joseph, I wouldn't have that level of confidence. Because if you remember, Joseph had some really big dreams once where his brothers and his family were bowing down to him and he couldn't be further removed from that dream becoming a reality. Yet for some reason, Joseph has this extreme level of confidence and trust and faith in God. And I find that to be amazing. Look at verse 9. So the chief cupbearer told Joseph his dream. He said to him, In my dream I saw a vine in front of me, and on the vine were three branches. As soon as it budded, it blossomed, and its clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes, squeezed them into Pharaoh's cup, and put the cup in his hand. This is what it means, Joseph said to him. The three branches are three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your position. And you will put Pharaoh's cup in his hand, just as you used to do when you were the cupbearer. But when all goes well with you, remember me and show me kindness. Mention me to Pharaoh and get me out of this prison. For I was forcibly carried off from the land of the Hebrews. And being here, I have done nothing to deserve being put in this dungeon. So Joseph interprets the dream, but he quickly moves into, Hey bro, listen, when you get out... Put in a good word for me with your boss, Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, all right? When you get out, make sure you remember me. You see, Joseph has not given up. He's not, he's not given up to his circumstances. He's not resigned to his circumstances. He's going to pursue getting out of his circumstances. And we so often resign ourselves to our circumstances where we go, this is so hard, this is so heavy, this is so difficult, nothing will ever change, and I'll just go on believing that way. Yet Joseph has faith And at the same time takes the opportunity when it's presented to him to get out of his circumstances. Having faith doesn't mean being paralyzed in the midst of your circumstances and sitting on your hands. Having faith means trusting that God's going to do what God's going to do and you do what you can do. And so Joseph takes advantage of this opportunity. He probably views this as God presenting him with an opportunity. The other thing is this, I don't know if you noticed or not. Did you notice that he has not forgotten what his brothers did to him? I mean, to forgive is one thing, to forget is impossible, right? He, he sees clearly that it was a great injustice that was done to him when his brother sold him into slavery. And he also sees that it was a great injustice done to him when he was thrown into a prison for a crime he didn't commit. So he's saying all this to the cupbearer and the baker's just kind of listening. And now the, the baker's like, hey, I, my turn. I want to go now. So let's look at this, verse 16. When the chief baker saw that Joseph had given a favorable interpretation, he said to Joseph, I, I too had a dream. On my head were three baskets of bread. In the top basket were all kinds of baked goods for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating them out of the basket on my head. Well, this is what it means, Joseph said. The three baskets are three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift off your head that's an important word and hang you on a tree and the birds will eat away your flesh and I imagine the baker going what (laughs) like wait wait a second I want his dream I want his interpretation let's switch places you know I mean I don't know what he's thinking in that moment but he's going are you are you kidding me I, I find it interesting that Joseph doesn't tell this guy what he wants to hear he just tells him what the truth is and look at if so we'll see if it pans out look at verse 20 Now the third day was Pharaoh's birthday. He gave a feast for all his officials. 
He lifted up the heads of the chief cupbearer and the chief baker in the presence of his officials. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position so that once again he put the cup in Pharaoh's hand, but he hanged the chief baker, just as Joseph had said to them in his interpretation. See, often on king's birthdays, they would set people free just as kind of a way to, to celebrate. And so Joseph, three days later, he's sitting in the jail cell, and sure enough, somebody comes and lets these guys out just like he predicted, and then they don't come back. And so if I'm Joseph, this, I'm going, this is my moment, this is my time to shine. I'm just sitting here waiting by the jail cell, waiting for somebody to come let me out and go, hey, the cupbearer told Pharaoh about you and now you get to get out of jail. And if I'm Joseph, I've got these high hopes and these high dreams of at least getting out of this prison and maybe being made just a slave again in somebody's house, hopefully not Potiphar's house, but somebody's house. That would be the like best case scenario, right? Well, let's see what happens. Look at verse 23. The chief cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. That's not the way it's supposed to go. That's not the way you would write the story. It's not the way I would write the story. Certainly it's not the way Hollywood would write the story. This is the moment in Shawshank Redemption where he escapes from prison and brings down the warden with him. That, that's the way that's supposed to play out. Like if I was writing this story, the way it would play out is Joseph would get out of prison and then Potiphar would go home, find his wife in bed with the gardener, throw her in prison, and then he would go crawling back to Joseph and go, I'm so, so sorry, you were all right about her and then you can take over my household again. That's the way I would write the story. And if I'm Joseph in this circumstance, and the cupbearer has forgotten me, I would take that a step further and go, no, it just wasn't a cupbearer who forgot about me. God, you forgot about me. Where are you right now? Are you mad at me? Are, are you asleep at the wheel in my life? Or worse yet, are you trying to drive me off a cliff? Have you ever been in a point in your life where you feel like you just can't take one more disappointment? I mean, that's where I imagine Joseph to be right now. Look at the next chapter, chapter 41. When two full years had passed. Now stop right there. We so easily just skim over phrases like that. Think about that. Put yourself in Joseph's place. Two full years. And oftentimes we glamorize Bible people and like, well, I'm sure he just sang worship songs the whole time he was in there. For, no, I, you know what? I bet that was a struggle. I bet that was painful. I bet he wrestled with God. I bet he struggled with depression. I bet it was an awful two years of questions feeling like maybe God had abandoned him. Now keep going. Pharaoh had a dream. He was standing by the Nile when out of the river there came up seven cows, sleek and fat, and they grazed among the reeds. After them, seven other cows, ugly and gaunt, came up out of the Nile and stood beside those on the riverbank. And the cows that were ugly and gaunt ate up the seven sleek, fat cows. Then Pharaoh woke up. You think? (laughs) He fell asleep again, I have no idea how, and had a second dream. Seven heads of grain, healthy and good, were growing on a single stalk. After them, seven other heads of grain sprouted thin and scorched by the east wind. The thin heads of grain swallowed up the seven healthy full heads. Then Pharaoh woke up. It had been a dream. In the morning, his mind was troubled. Yeah. So he sent for all the magicians and wise men of Egypt. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but no one could interpret them for him. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, Today I'm reminded of my shortcomings. Pharaoh was once angry with his servants, and he imprisoned me and the chief baker in the house of the captain of the guard. Each of us had a dream the same night, and each dream had a meaning of its own. Now a young Hebrew was there with, his, with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. We told him, in our, told him our dreams, and, and he interpreted them for us, giving each man the interpretation of his dream. And things turned out exactly as he interpreted them to us. I was restored to my position and the other man was hanged. And so not only are these dreams like a sick and twisted version of a Chick-fil-A commercial meets a nightmare on Elm Street movie, (laughs) all right? 
But finally, this stupid cupbearer like, comes to his senses and does what he was supposed to do a couple years ago. I mean, it's about time. So look at verse 14. So Pharaoh sent for Joseph, and he was quickly brought from the dungeon. When he had shaved and changed his clothes, he came before Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream, and no one can interpret it. But I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. I cannot do it, Joseph replied to Pharaoh, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. Can I be honest? My lead line would not be, I cannot do it. That is not what I would lead with. I mean, he's going to throw you back in prison before you say say the next sentence. He can kill you before you say the next sentence. What do you mean you can't do it? You've done it before. You just did it with the cupbearer and the baker a couple of years earlier. But what I think Joseph is doing is this. He wants to make really, really clear to Pharaoh, listen, I'm not one of your magicians. I'm not trying to tap into some sort of mojo. I don't have anything special about me, but I am connected to someone who is special and his name is God. And I think that's another example of Joseph's unreal faith. After all this, he still has confidence in God. He's still leaning his life against God as he has trusted that God is leaning against him. So the next several verses is Pharaoh recounting the sick and twisted dream for him. And then we get to verse 25 and, and Joseph speaks up. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one and the same. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years and the seven good heads of grain are seven years. It's one and the same dream. The seven lean, ugly cows that came up afterward are seven years and so are the seven worthless heads of grain scorched by the east wind. They are seven years of famine. It is just as I said to Pharaoh, God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. Seven years of great abundance are coming throughout the land of Egypt, but seven years of famine will follow them. Then all the abundance in Egypt will be forgotten and the famine will ravage the land. The abundance in the land will not be remembered because the famine that follows it will be so severe. The reason the dream was given to Pharaoh in two forms is the matter has been firmly decided by God and God will do it soon. So Joseph explains what these dreams mean. There's going to be seven years where we're going to have more than enough, more than we need. And then there's going to be seven years after that where we're not going to have anything. And then he anchors these dreams in God's sovereignty. And he's saying to Pharaoh, who considers himself a God, listen, God has decided to do this and you don't get to vote on it. Like it's going to happen. And this is the point where if I was Joseph, I'd just shut up, be quiet and reach out my hand for my reward. But he doesn't do that. He's going to offer advice to the king now look at this verse 33 and now let pharaoh look for a discerning and wise man and put him in charge of the land of egypt let pharaoh appoint commissioners over the land to take a fifth of the harvest of egypt during the seven years of abundance they should collect all the food in these good years that are coming and store up the grain under the authority of pharaoh to be kept in the cities for food this food should be held in reserve for the country to be used during the seven years of famine that will come upon egypt so that the country may not be ruined by famine so so this is this is joseph basically going i don't know where you're going to find such a wise guy who's got this all figured out already but you better find somebody right <laughs> He's a smart guy. He knows what he's doing. Now, Pharaoh, look at how he responds. Verse 37. The plan seemed good to Pharaoh and all his officials. So Pharaoh asked them, can we find anyone like this man, one in whom is the spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God's made all this known to you, there's no one so discerning and wise as you. You'll be in charge of my palace and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. Pharaoh's going, "You, you seem to have the kind of mojo we're looking for. So... Why don't you just be in charge? And in a flash, in a moment, Joseph goes from being a a prisoner slave to really the functional ruler of the most powerful country in the world. Look, Look at verse 41. 
So Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took the signet ring from his finger, put it on Joseph's finger, dressed him in robes of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. He had him ride in a chariot as his second in command. He's like a rapper's entourage. I mean, look at this. And and men shouted before him, make way. Thus he put him in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, but without your word, no one will lift hand or foot in all of Egypt. I mean, that is unreal. Now, here's the thing you have to notice. This is being done in front of all the officials of his, of his palace, one of which is a dude named Potiphar, who Joseph's got a little history with. Potiphar's standing there as Pharaoh goes, hey, everybody, just so you know, he's in charge from now on. Do whatever he says. If I'm Potiphar, that's a bad day. That's a bad, bad moment. Think about when he goes home to his wife. Hey, honey, how was your day? Anything interesting happen? Yeah, I got a new boss. So really, who is it? Remember, remember that slave you accused of rape and we threw into prison? Yeah, he's our new boss. Why don't, why don't we pack? Let's, let's get out of here. That, that's what my response would be. And so things play out really, really well for Joseph. If you keep reading, he gets a wife. He has two sons. He travels all over Egypt in a nice ride, executing his plan for how to handle the upcoming famine. And verse 46 tells us he was about 30 years old when all this took place, which means that it's been 13 long years since he was sold into slavery by his brothers. And now, as he's journeyed through all those years of pain and suffering, he's now the most powerful man in the whole world and he executes his plan perfectly during the years of plenty he travels all over the place he creates these storehouses and then when the years of famine come everybody comes to joseph to buy grain not just from inside the country of egypt but from all around the world look at this in verse 57 and all the countries came to egypt to buy grain from joseph because the famine was severe in all the world all the world people are coming from all over the place to Joseph to buy grain. I wonder who that might include. You'll have to wait to find out next week. Now, I got some questions. What if the cupbearer had remembered Joseph when Joseph wanted him to remember him two years earlier? How would that have turned out? Answer, not as well as this. Have you ever had circumstances in your life that in the midst of the circumstances it felt like God was abandoning you and then only in retrospect in the rearview mirror can you see that God actually wasn't abandoning you? In fact, he was holding you up. He was propping you up and he was thinking of you. That's what's going on here. Joseph in the moment when the cupbearer forgot him, that was precisely the moment where God was thinking of him and providing for him. God was right in the middle of all those circumstances, even when Joseph couldn't see it. See, oftentimes what people intend for evil, God intends for good. Let me ask you another question. Have you noticed a pattern in Joseph's life? Wherever Joseph was, whether it was in slavery, whether it was in a prison, or whether it's now the, the, the most powerful guy in the world, he's given two things, power and responsibility. Those two things are inextricably linked to one another. He's given the power to make decisions and the responsibility that goes along with it. With great power comes great responsibility. Spider-Man did not come up with that phrase. It was robbed from, from the Bible. This is true whether you have a little bit of responsibility in one man's house or a little prison or the greatest country in the world, which is precisely why one of Joseph's relatives many generations later would say this, from everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who's been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. Jesus was constantly and always teaching this one simple truth. You are not in charge of how much you've been given, but you are in charge of what you do with what you've been given. 
I'm not in charge of how much you've been given. That is not your deal. You can't control that. You are in charge of what you do with what you've got. And there's a coinciding truth that goes like this. If you're trustworthy with a little, you'll be given more. You don't have to believe in God, Jesus, or the Bible to know, well, that's wise. I give my daughter $10 and she loses it. I'm not giving her 20 tomorrow. That just makes sense. Joseph was given power and responsibility at every turn and it was a gift from God that was entrusted to him for his care. The reality for every person in this room is that you have some power and some responsibility. The only thing that changes are the stakes. And the question remains the same. What are you going to do with the power and with the responsibility that you've been given? See, when Joseph was a slave in the house of Potiphar, he was given a relatively a high amount of responsibility. And the stakes are relatively high. I mean, if he messes things up, he's going to mess up the whole household of a pretty important dude. And he could have let that go to his head and he could have looked at his circumstances and gone, you know what, I'm going to get what I can because I take this position of entitlement. I don't like my circumstances, so I'm going to take what I can get and kind of stick it to the man. I could, have, I could have slept with my master's wife. He could have done all those things. And oftentimes we take that perspective of if I don't like my circumstances, I'm going to get what I can get for myself because after all, don't I deserve it for putting up with this? Yet Joseph refuses to do that. He won't sacrifice his integrity or sin against God. He had power and responsibility given to him and he chose not to abuse either one of those things for his own benefit. And what does he get as a reward for doing the right thing? He gets thrown in prison. I got an email from a man a couple weeks ago as we were kicking off this sermon series. He's, he's a part of our church and for a long time, he was kind of describing for a long time how his job has robbed him of the opportunity to spend a lot of time with his family and many, many times he's been called back from vacations early or had to delay vacations or even cancel vacations with his family because his job just kept calling him back and back and back and for a long time, he just allowed that to happen and recently, he walked through the reverse engineering series like a bunch of us guys did and he took this commitment, this thin red line commitment and was wearing this bracelet and he's decided I'm going to I'm going to have a new level of commitment to my family and so in the midst of this there was a a moment coming up where he knew that his his work was going to ask him to delay a vacation that they had planned for a long time and so he went to his bosses his superiors and just drew a line in the sand and went listen guys I've let this go on too long I cannot continue to do this this way and so I'm not going to be canceling my vacation I'm going on my vacation and you know what happened he got fired He did the right thing and he got fired. And that's not the way we want the story to play out. If you're going to share a story like that in church, you're supposed to tell the story like, and his bosses rewarded him for his great decision, you know? No, that's not how it always plays out. But you know what? That man will have no regrets. He won't. I talked to him in the lobby after the last service. There's no regrets. It's still really painful, but there's no regrets. His kids, and I looked one of them in the eyes out in the lobby just an hour ago, his kids have no doubt to the answer of the question of, does my dad love me? Does my dad prioritize me above his status, his, his money, his job, his pride? They know the answer to that. And many, many, many years later, I've never met a person who on their deathbed said, you know what? I really regret I should have worked more at the expense of my most important relationships. Never met that person. I've met countless people who are at the end of their run, at the end of their life, and they go, oh, if I could just do it over again, I would value my most important relationships over my job. Here's the reality. Regardless of the outcome, it was the right choice. He got fired for making the right choice, and sometimes it goes down like that, and sometimes it doesn't. 
I have a friend who recently had the opportunity to make some much needed money and all he had to do was promote something that's sinful. Would have been really, really easy money. Two deals on the table. You can get the easy money. All you have to do is promote something sinful or you can take the hard way and say no. Two deals on the table. He said no. You know what? A couple days later, more than enough money came in from an unexpected place. And that's the story we want. That's the one you're supposed to tell in church. But what we have to understand is this simple truth. The outcome doesn't validate the decision. If my friend would have gone bankrupt the next week, guess what? It was still the right decision. We got to get our minds and our hearts around this. You can make the wrong decision and still get a good outcome. You can make the right decision and still get a bad outcome. See, when Joseph was in charge of the prison, he had some power and some responsibility. But let's be honest, it's, the stakes are low. It's a prison. If he messes it up, what, what's the worst that can happen? It's already a really messed up place. And if I'm Joseph, I go, what's it matter what I do in this prison? I'm just going to focus on myself and try to get mine. But that's not what Joseph does. And now Joseph is the, is the ruler of the most powerful country in the world. He has almost ultimate power and he has tremendous responsibility. The stakes are much, much higher. What's he going to do? God's been so good. Now he's on top of the world. What's he going to do? You remember the last time Joseph was on top of the world? He's wearing his father's coat. Arrogant, prideful, 17-year-old kid. Now many years later, he's wearing the robe of a a king. What's he going to be like now? Is this the point in the story where Joseph goes, it's about time, God. I've got it from here. Is that what Joseph's going to do? Or has Joseph forged such a deep relationship with God over the past 13 years that he simply cannot do life apart from God? See, if there was ever a person who knew the truth that it can all be taken away in a second and how fast circumstances can change, it was Joseph. And most of the time he's seen that happen in a negative sense. Now's the first time he's seen it happen in a, a positive sense. And now here he is. Everything that he has has been given to him and entrusted to him. And he knows it can all be taken away in a second. So how's Joseph going to use his power? Will he use it for his benefit or for others? We've got a lot of people in our church who are dealing with really difficult circumstances. I have those conversations all the time out in the lobby. We also have a lot of people in our church who have some pretty good circumstances right now. And if that's you, I've got to ask you, if things are pretty good right now, the question is, do you think that's just for you? Or, or is it possible, and I'm just asking, is it possible that God might be taking care of you so that you can take care of someone else? See, whether you're in the deepest pit or sitting in a palace, you've been given some power and some responsibility. What are you going to do with it, with what you've been given? See, when I think of power and responsibility in my life, my, my mind immediately turns to my family. I've been given these three kids and this one wife. I've been given them by God because at the end of the day, Landry, Eli, and Silas are God's kids on loan to me, entrusted to me, to be their father while I'm here on this earth. And there's going to be an audit one day where God is going to look me in the eye and go, what'd you do with my kids? What'd you do with them? Did did you use your power and did you take responsibility in their life for their benefit and for their good? And did you point them to me? Or did you use your power for you, for your benefit? He's going to do that. And he's going to look me in the eye one day and go, I gave you my daughter to be her husband. 
She was on loan to you. She was entrusted to you, Scott. What did you do with her? How did you use your power and your responsibility to provide and protect? What did you do? And every person in this room who's in a family is gonna have the same conversation with God. So if you're in a family, you have some power and some responsibility. If you're in here and you're a teenager, you gotta listen to me for a second. You have some power and it's for good or for bad in your family. And you have no idea how the decisions you make affect your family for good or for bad. And you gotta understand something. Your decisions are not just about you. They're not. And if you have any hope or dream of God ever entrusting you with more power and more responsibility in your life, then you would be wise to handle the power and responsibility that he's given you now well, or God would be unwise to give you another ounce of power and responsibility. So handle it well. A lot of us in this room, we have a job. Whether you're handing out food outside a drive through window or whether you're a corporate CEO traveling on private jets around the world making multi-million dollar deals, the truth is still the same. You have some power and some responsibility. How much is not your deal and not in your control, but what you do with it is you are responsible with what you've been given. So how are you doing with that? Are you just punching a clock? Are you mailing it in? Are your decisions based on just your benefit or on the benefit of others? Are you being responsible with what you've been given? Let me give you an example, all right? So, so our, uh, our staff did a little like, team building day at boondocks down on 104th and i-25 a couple weeks ago we're gonna have this big meeting but we got to do go-karts first all right so here's my thing about go-karts okay the only reason that go-karts have any appeal to me is this all right because i drive a car to work every day that goes much faster than the go-kart okay that's not exciting to me to just drive in circles at 25 miles an hour, okay? What is exciting to me is being able to wreck my car into other people's cars, all right? (laughs) They frown on that out here on South Public Road, all right? Apparently, that's also against the rules at Boondocks, all right? So, (laughs) so... So they turn our staff loose on the track at Boondocks and there's this little light, you know, it's like red and yellow and then green and then it, green and we all take off and within 10 seconds it becomes days of thunder out there. I mean, there's <laughs> smoke and fire and people are crying and at one point I was driving the wrong way down the track, which was awesome and there's these two guys who are probably 18 19 years old who have been given the power and the responsibility of making sure that the rules are followed on the track and the only thing they give them to wield their power with is a whistle (laughs) so they're just running around the track just blowing this whistle just pointing at us and we're just waving and going oh can't hear you bam and then running into people it was just beautiful. And so we get done with the very first race and they, they line you up on the, on the opposite end of the track before they let you all drive back into the, into the pits. And, and they got us lined up and, and this 18 year old kid comes walking over to me. He goes, I need to see your bracelet, please. They're giving us all these bracelets. I'm like, okay. So I hold it up and he pulls out a Sharpie. All right. Like it's a sword, you know, and he, and he draws a line around it. And I'm like, what, what's that mean? He's like, that means if you do that again, you get expelled from the track for the rest of the day. And I'm like, all right. So we, we get back in line and we go again and then we destroy each other on the track again. And they're blowing the whistle in the whole nine yards and we pull into the, into the row and here comes a kid. He's walking towards me and the whole staff's like, ooh, you know, and, and, and he's walking towards me like, hand me your bracelet. And so I hold it out and he puts these big X's on it. And then he got, and this was unexpected. I was expecting it to be allowed to drive back in and everything. He goes, uh, I need you to step out of the car. I'm waiting for him to say, and put your hands on the hood. I'm like, bro, you know, 
and he makes, he won't let me drive it back into the pits. He makes me take this walk of shame all the way across the track. And the whole staff is just pointing and laughing and they're like, this is awesome. And Here's the thing, I, I could tell on their faces, I've seen it a million times, all right? When, when you could tell on somebody's face, they're like, oh, this is, this is going to be awful. Because I could tell they've been dealing with idiots like me all summer, right? And, like, and it would have been really easy for them to go, you know what, who cares? Just go kill each other out there on the track. I don't care, I'm going to sit under this tree, I'm going to swallow my whistle, who cares? But yet they didn't. They were entrusted by the management of boondocks to make sure idiots like me get ejected from the track and that's precisely what they did and for that I think they should be commended because a lot of us, here's the angle we take, we go, listen, I'm working this crappy job in these crappy circumstances so what I do doesn't matter, who cares? And then Jesus comes along inconveniently like he so often does and says, listen, you're not responsible for how much you've been given, bro. You're responsible for what you do with what you've been given, Jim and I, we, we have this discussion just about weekly where we go, listen, I would rather God kill me. This is, this is true. I'd rather God kill me than allow me to screw up my family or screw up this church. We have this conversation all the time. And I feel the weight of the fact that my decisions don't just affect me. They, the weight of my decisions is, be, the ripple effects of my decisions probably is beyond what I can even fathom. And the weight of that hits me every morning when I wake up and every night before I go to bed and honestly all throughout the day as I walk around. And I can allow one of two things to happen with the weight of that pressure. I can either allow that to crush me and I can just kind of phone it in, mail it in or do what a lot of us often do and self-sabotage and go, you know what, I'll probably screw it up one day anyway. Let's just go ahead and get it over with or I can allow the weight of that pressure to drive me to my knees and go God I am totally and utterly dependent on you to be able to do anything every hour of every day you see when things are going really good we should hit our knees even more than when things are going really really bad because our level of dependence on God doesn't change with our circumstances whether it's good or bad or in between the fact that you are totally and utterly dependent on God never changes the question is do I live my life that way see as Jim alluded to last week sometimes it's harder to have faith when things are going really well because it's easy to start to believe that I've got it under control but the reality is whether you're at the bottom of a well or sitting in a palace you need God just the same on the good days as the bad days so let me ask you do you see how much you need God despite how good your circumstances are that's some of us in this room See, Joseph was just as dependent on God when he's in the bottom of a well or in a prison or when he rode around Egypt in a chartered chariot telling people what to do. The level of power had changed. The level of responsibility had increased, but his level of dependence on God was exactly the same. There's this old song written by this man named Horatio Spafford a couple hundred years ago, and he lived a really, really hard life. He, He lost everything in a fire. That's something a lot of people in our state can understand right now. He's going to try to get his re- to start again in Europe. And so he, he, he was going to travel with his family to Europe on a boat. And he got delayed. And so he sent his wife and his four daughters on this boat ahead of him sailing across the Atlantic. And their boat sank. And his four daughters died. His wife's the only one who survived. And when, when they were rescued, she sent word back to him in the United States that the boat sank. Our daughters are dead. I'm the only one alive. Get here as soon as you can frantically gets on a boat to sail the exact same route that they had sailed and he knew where they had sunk and as he approached that spot he wrote the words 
to a famous song called It Is Well With My Soul. And in it, he talks about, hey, listen, whether, whether my life is peaceful like a river or whether my life is more like storms on a huge, open, and vast sea, I've learned to trust that God is good even when my circumstances are not. And he anchors that hope in two things. He anchors it in, number one, what God has done when he sent his son Jesus to a cross to bear the weight of our sin and our shame and to take the punishment that we so deserve on our behalf, God has proved his love for us when he sent his one and only son Jesus to die on a cross for our sins. And he anchors it in what God's gonna do when God promises to send his one and only son to redeem and restore and to make right everything that's so wrong with this jacked up world and to wipe away every tear from every eye. That's worth anchoring your hope and your faith in. I had a conversation in an emergency room just a few days ago with a family in our church looking at this couple who their son had just been killed an hour and a half before that moment where we're standing there. And with tear-filled eyes, this mother looks at me and says, we still have faith. I don't have a category for that. They were here last night, the whole family sitting over there and, and she looks at me and goes, God is propping us up. We can feel his presence. He's holding us up in the midst of these horrible circumstances. And I know this seems like a really odd place to land on a day where what we studied in the Bible was something really good happening to somebody. But listen, if anybody learned, it was Joseph, that for good or for bad, that stuff can all change but he knew that his level of dependence on God could never change. Whether things were great, whether things were just awful beyond comprehension. Our level of dependence on God, our soul being well does not depend on our circumstances. Our soul being well depends entirely and only on Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and some of us, we're in the, we're in the bottom of a really deep pit. And God, my prayer is that you help us see beyond our circumstances and see that we are totally dependent on you. God, some of us, we're in a really good place. We're on top of a mountain. Things are great right now. My prayer is that we can see beyond our circumstances and see that we are totally dependent on you. Wherever we are on that spectrum, whether things are good or bad, my prayer is that you will shine forth your love so that we can see how much you love us in the form of your son, Jesus. And that you'll help us help our souls to be well despite our circumstances, for good or for bad. In Jesus' name, amen.